You're listening to Helping Your Business Grow, a new podcast from the Mill Enterprise Hub in Drogheda. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Helping Your Business Grow, a new podcast from the Mill Enterprise Hub here in Drogheda with me, Colm Hanratty, founder and CEO of digital marketing agency 62Digital and proud board member and co-chair of the Mill Enterprise Hub. For those of you not familiar with The Mill, we are a supportive community where entrepreneurs with ambition can grow their business. It's that simple. We offer hot desks and office space, but a lot more than that. There's a mentor program, regular events, which of course are virtual in this COVID era, and most importantly, by being a miller, as we like to call ourselves, you'll benefit from being surrounded by like-minded entrepreneurs. If you want to know more, log on to themilldrohada.ie. There's also a link in the notes of this episode. Now, to tell you a bit about our new podcast. In each episode, I'll be talking to different entrepreneurs from Drohada and beyond, asking them for their top tips on how to grow a business. These people I'll be speaking to are thought leaders, business people who have built their businesses from the ground up, meaning they'll have lots of valuable tips to share, which will be extremely helpful for anyone out there who is listening and has either started a business or is thinking of taking the plunge and setting one up. In each podcast, I'll also be speaking to a resident of the mill, known as Millers, to tell us about their business. First up is Michael and John McKeown of Carpe Omnia, a new lifestyle brand from Cullen in County Louth. But before that, I'm speaking with our very first guest and someone who is very apt since he opened the mill back in 2014. It is Gavin Cooney, founder and CEO of Learnosity, a platform that provides the core elements required for any assessment solution, from authoring and assessment delivery right through to reporting. Since launching, they have grown from strength to strength, and today they have offices in Sydney, New York, and Dublin. Gavin is also a Drogheda native and someone I have the pleasure of knowing for many years. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Colin. Very good. Now, tell me uh, how you got to where you are today. So what did you study in college and what happened then? Well, I did the BCom in UCD, um, the three years of that. And I, when I was there, I was tutoring the, you know, when I was in third years, tutoring the first and second years and so on. And I got the a kind of a full-time position to be the head tutor for the undergrads um, in, in the BCom while I did my master's. So I did my master's part-time over a couple of years. Um, I did the master's of business studies. Um, and then for a year, I did lecturing in UCD. Uh, and I did the I did the startup. My first startup was Meteor Mobile, you know, 085. So I was the, I don't know, the 40th, 50th employee in there. And I did all the systems in there, did all, all, all the websites as, as we as we started that company back in 2000. And then I headed off to Australia and, and the rest is history. Very good. And so then when you went off to Australia and you got the idea of Lernosity in your mind at the time, did you go there to develop that or was it something that happened a bit more organically as you were there? No, I mean, I always knew I wanted to own my own business. So that was always what I wanted to do. If you had asked 12-year-old Gav what he wanted to be when he grew up, he would have said something around owning his own business, some variation of being an entrepreneur. So if I had a state in media, for example, which I kind of nearly did, I'd be here talking about my kind of mobile phone billing company or something similar to that. Uh, I would go to Australia to kind of backpack and as all Irish people tend to do. And got a job by complete chance, a two-day contract with the Department of Education in Australia called the Board of Studies at the time. And uh, just kind of fell into education, fell into this thing and realized that 
educational technology was kind of offensively bad, right? It was just really, really bad. If you take a, a doctor out of a surgery 100 years ago, put him in a surgery today, he doesn't know what all, mach- all these machines do, what the drugs do. He doesn't know where he is. Take a teacher out of a classroom from 100 years ago. They're kind of at home right now. They have a whiteboard, not a, not a chalkboard. But it's kind of the same as it was 100 years ago, same as it was when I was a kid, same as it was when Jesus was a kid. It's basically chalk and talk. So I was kind of instantly offended by the bad educational technology and realized that I could probably make a bit of a difference here and set up a company then to try to improve education. And we did this and approached it in a certain way that would we thought maybe would reach the most amount of students. And that was powering other people's products as opposed to building our own. What we have is a bunch of, metaphorically, a bunch of Lego bricks that people can use to build a product. We don't have an end-to-end product. No teacher or student knows who we are. We're the kind of underpinnings with the infrastructure behind the bunch of learning products. So we still don't have anything that, that you can log into. You don't really log into their nosity and do something. People use our tools to build products. And in turn, they get them to market quicker. They, um, their total cost of ownership is lower. They get a better product. And it just means that we can reach more students. We've about 40, 40 million students using Vernosity this year, which is absolutely bonkers. Um, in October, we did 2 billion questions, 2.15 billion, billion with a B questions were delivered because it's all around assessments and testing and so on. Um, that's just like absolutely staggering, staggering numbers. And, you know, in, in a way, and it comes into some of the uh, tips I'm going to talk about, we needed something that was kind of capital efficient and, um, we didn't have a bunch of money to go off and sell, build a sales force and sell the schools or build an end-to-end product or build a brand. We could build something and we could sell it to a small number of players and let them have many, many users. So I can sell to one logo, one company, and they'll have a million students. And I make my um, my impact on the education industry. I reach the number of students I can reach. I can improve education globally but I don't actually have to go door to door and sell school to school or whatever. But that's when you started off in Sydney and it's obviously grown since then because now you've got other, you've got offices in other places around the world. Yeah, so we started uh, basically as a consulting agency for the Department of Education in Australia, uh, built it out from there, realized there was a market to it. Other companies were coming to us, other governments were coming to us and asking us how, how we did this thing. We're like, is it not obvious? It's just, it's this thing. And we kind of realized there was a market for it and we decided to sell to other companies uh, globally. So, you know, fast forward 10 or 12 years, there's about 90 of us. There's about 50 people in Australia, in the center of Sydney, in office there, which is where I'm normally based. We've got 15, 20 people in Dublin. Uh, we've got another 15 or so people in the United States. So, you know, entrepreneurship being famously easy, we decided to make it hard for ourselves. We're an Irish company basically headquartered in Australia with our market in the U.S., so just to, to add, nice mix and a lot of time zones, a lot of late, late nights. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose over the, well, look, I'm sure things have changed, but over the years, how, has you, how have you seen your own business change uh, since you've set it up? Well, it went from a two-man operation, myself and my business partner, Mark, to, you know, just about 90 people now. And we're now owned by private equity in the States. And it's it's a, just a big maturing thing. It's like, it's like our kid has grown up, has gone to college, uh, maybe got got its first job. It's really sort of has grown up and we've gone through all those stages, a lot to learn along the way about how you do a startup. It's just a different animal uh, getting from sort of zero dollars to say your first million in turnover. That's one challenge. Getting to 10 million is another challenge. Getting above that is another challenge. So there's different stages and we've gone through a bunch of those stages now. And now we're at a certain stage, as I said, 
a bunch of people working for us. We've got 120 clients. We're delivering to 40 million students, and we're owned by private equity. So it's just like a lot of a, a lot of stages and a lot a lot of a lot of evolution in the business over the last number of years. Of course, and the, uh, I'm not sure is it a pun or is it just that, but obviously then you've learned a lot along the way as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did a. A bachelor of Commerce and a Master's of Business Studies realized when I got into business, I knew nothing about business. Like what education is what you have when you forget what you've learned, right? It's sort of, so I knew a little bit about how to think about business and so on, but I had to learn an awful, an awful lot to uh, to run this thing. And I'm still learning today. I'm still trying to take whatever mentoring, whatever uh, training I can get to try to get to the next stage because I'm a, a CEO of a certain amount right now. And to get to the next level, like where, where are the ambitions lie um, kind of an order of magnitude higher than where they are today. So I need to grow myself to make sure I can still be the CEO and we get to where we're going. As I say, kind of sort of phrase, come every day is a school day, you know, like, a, don't think it is a cliche. I think every day is a school day, particularly when you're in business, because particularly when it comes to when, when something negative might happen, I don't want to use the word mistake. I never look at it as a mistake. Look at it as something that you've learned. You go, okay, well, this didn't go the way that I would have hoped that it went. So what did I learn from it and how can I maybe not let that happen again? But anyway, yeah, so look, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, story, but it, it's, it's uh, like under huge, huge numbers. So obviously your business is, um, is a great success and congratulations on that success. And, uh, on that success. and obviously over those um, years, you've learned a lot, uh, which brings us on to these uh, five tips. So what I have asked you, Gavin, is to put together your top five tips for somebody in terms of how to grow a business, helping your business grow. So tip number one, what have you got? Tip number one is understanding your business model and getting the lifetime value of a contract to the customer acquisition costs, getting that ratio correct. And there's a lot of jargon there, but let me break it down for you. Basically, customer acquisition cost is your cost of acquiring a customer, which is basically your sales cost plus your marketing cost. And let's say you're going to spend, I don't know, in my, in my terms, I might spend a million dollars in that a year. So what do I get back for that investment in my acquisition of customer cost? And what that is, is the lifetime value of a, of a, of a contract. So if I get another, if I get a contract and maybe it's a hundred thousand dollars a year, well, how long will that contract last? And what's the lifetime value of that contract? Add them all up. So you have a hundred grand a year. It might stay around for five years. That makes it 500 grand. And what you need to do is you need to get your lifetime value and make sure that is far in excess of your customer acquisition costs. This is different to cash flow management. This is different to profit and loss. If you can have lifetime values far, far in excess of your customer acquisition costs, we're talking about five times perhaps, then you need to keep on investing in customer acquisition. And you'll get more and more contracts. And um, really, you need to understand where you are. If you draw these two things on two axes, so on the y-axis, you have the lifetime value from high to low. On the x-axis, you have the customer acquisition cost from low to high. So in the bottom left-hand quadrant there, you have kind of business-to-consumer stuff where you have a low lifetime value relatively, um, and therefore, you need a kind of self-service business model. Top left, you have the kind of holy grail of it all, which is high lifetime value and a low cost of acquisition. On the top right, you have where Lernosity is, which is high lifetime value, but it's pretty expensive to acquire a customer. Like I'll get on a plane, I'll go to, in the non-pandemic time, I'll go to like Wisconsin to pitch somebody to try to get their business because it's worth my while because a high lifetime value of deal. 
And where you absolutely don't want to be, which is kind of the point I'm trying to make here, is in the bottom right-hand quadrant here. If you have a relatively low lifetime value and a relatively high customer acquisition cost, that's where startups go to die. So you need to make sure that that ratio is correct. So whatever you're spending on marketing, whatever you're spending on sales, you need to know that whatever you're getting from that repeats and it has a higher lifetime value. And you need to understand the ratio between those two things and and, and the relationship between them. So um, easier to draw out, obviously, visually, as I explain it. But knowing your business model, knowing your pricing model and understanding that is the most important thing. It's rule number one. Just one point that you touched on there, I suppose, is that um, where you are, is that your cost per acquisition is quite high, but then the lifetime value of your customer is quite high. So in which case, you could argue, I suppose it's relative because the it's kind of, it's, it's margins really here, I suppose, what we're talking about in terms of your cost to acquire something and then how much that is going to be uh, worth. In any one year, we want to break even on our customer acquisition costs. We want to make as many sales for of new sales for that year that will cover our sales and marketing for the year. But the value of our contracts go on for years and they rise over years. So when we do this calculation, we get anything from 10 to 20 times uh, lifetime value over customer acquisition cost, which makes it a very scalable, long-term business. I can rely on last year's contracts to get me through. So if I make never make another sale, we'll still make money for the foreseeable future. So in terms of cash flow positivity and not running out of money, we need to make sure you cover uh, your you cover your sales and marketing with your new sales. But really, if you can get that that that, that ratio right, and in my case, it's something around uh, 10, 15, 20 times um, lifetime value of deals over my customer acquisition cost, which just makes it scalable. And a big thing to this as well, of course, we're saying customer acquisition here, but then we're talking about the lifetime value. You've got no lifetime value of customer retention isn't a big thing here. So in which case, in, in terms of keeping these customers, that just comes down to providing a good, valuable service through uh, from when they actually come on board and continuing to offer that so they remain customers. Yeah, I'm here talking about this kind of space age, software as a service, infrastructure as a service business. But it's down to kind of bring in old-fashioned value. For whatever dollar they spend with me, how much value am I bringing back to them? And that, again, needs to be, they need to kind of look at that bill and go, I'm happy to spend that money because otherwise it would have cost me five times that or ten times that. And uh, But, you know, when you're looking at the numbers for us, we have no churn. So when somebody comes on board, they generally won't leave um, So as, as a customer. So what happens there is half of the equation for the scaling of our business is sorted because we've no churn. It's just like add more logos, add more revenue, and they will last basically forever. We don't know how long they last because we don't get any churn yet. Maybe it's 10 years. So they'll basically last forever. So when I pour in more customer acquisition costs, I pour in more lifetime value, I pour in more revenue for the long term, and there's no churn. So therefore, there's no revenue leakage in that way. So again, that goes back to being a scalable business and, and what we look at every day in terms of metrics and, and, and so on. The first thing that you mentioned with this point was understanding your business model. So if that's like it, something that you've been looking at from the beginning, have mm-hmm. you seen that your business model has changed? Have you uh, changed since you've kind of found the business? It changed quite a bit at the beginning and we spent a lot of time trying to 
tweak it and get it right and so on. And we hit on this model, this idea of selling longer term, larger contracts about eight years ago, maybe nine. And it's reasonably, as, as its fundamentals have been the same since that. It took us a long time, so we're five years to get to that model and to, and, and to find that, that ideal model for us and, and to go from there. So um, yeah, and anybody, if you're selling coffees, like it's, it's the same thing. The customer acquisition cost there is getting somebody to buy that first coffee. And then you know that every day they walk by, they're going to buy another coffee. Okay. And if you can keep them for six months of them walking by and buying coffees, that's it. That's it. That's the same. That's the same thing. And that's still where you look at your lifetime value of a customer versus the cost of acquisition. And there's famous examples here. You know, you've got stuff like Dropbox. They realized a number of years ago that they couldn't afford to advertise to bring on a new customer because each of those customers didn't bring in enough lifetime value. So they realized that it needed to be kind of viral in the way that they, um, in the way that customers signed on and therefore um, that they skewed that, that ratio. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of things there. I think about uh, Netflix. You know, I signed up my mom for Netflix. I signed up to a bunch of people for Netflix along the way. They'll, the churn is very, very low. Once you sign up for Netflix, you're probably going to keep it forever. So there again, they have a small marketing cost. There wasn't a door-to-door sales model. It was a simple lower cost of ownership, cost of acquisition um, there, but they have a higher lifetime value. Again, it makes it a great business. Anyway, John, then as well, for anybody who is listening, I suppose it's always looking at your business model and, and refining it until you kind of start off. Where you start off might necessarily be where you end up, but it's refining it along the way until you eventually come to, I don't know, for one for better expression, that sweet spot. And you go, do you know what? This is our business model and this is what works. You know, And you'll know when you see it, right? So we failed for a number of years, failed kind of quite miserably for a number of years trying to get this business off the ground. And when we hit it, we knew. It was easier to sell. It worked better. The numbers were good. And it, you could just smell, you could really feel it. That it was just it was different this time, and when when we pivoted and when we when, when we found that product, found a way the right way to sell it, it worked, and we knew it. Went from there exactly. Uh, so, no good advice. Tip number one. Tip number two, Kevin. Tip number two, cash is king. So it's the other side of this uh, of this piece. A bit of background here. We tried in 2010, 2011 to go out and get venture capital money for Veronosity, and we couldn't. I tried to get angel money, I couldn't. We didn't have any investment. So we had to build a model that worked without having external finance. We had to be really cautious around that. We had to be very, very capital efficient. And how we did that was to do cash flow positive deals. Every deal had to pay for itself. And we had to grow and make sales before we could hire somebody else or pay ourselves or do any marketing or, or anything else. And we had tried very hard to go get venture money and get external investment. We just couldn't do it. So we had to make a model that worked. So it is possible to build businesses, certain types of businesses at least, in this way. Probably happens a little bit slower than if you had external capital. But you need to work on your model. You need to work on your business and make sure that very, very soon after you start, it's cash flow positive. How we did that was every deal we made had to pay for itself. So I couldn't afford to go do a bunch of development for somebody uh, on the promise of a check coming next year. I just literally could not afford to do it. So I would 
force them to pay me up front. It just had to be done. I didn't have a choice. So we built that model and we made those deals that were cash flow positive. And then later on, of course, you can take the, you can afford to take more chances. But initially, we couldn't do that. So you don't need to spend a lot of money. You can fly economy. You can hustle. You can get introductions. You can do all the stuff that I did. I slept on sofas for a few years. I lived on beans and toast. Um, we used to do things like I'd go to a conference and I couldn't really afford to like rent a conference setup. You know, I have a booth in a conference. I couldn't really afford to do that. So I'd have a roll-up stand I got printed locally and I'd bring that in the plane with me. I'd put that in the back of the stand. I couldn't afford like to pay them for a table and whatever. So what I'd do is I'd go into my hotel room. I'd rob the table and chairs from the hotel room, bring it downstairs into the into the ballroom. I'd set it up as if it was as if it was kind of paid for. And then I'd bring it back up in the lift when nobody was watching later on. I used to go to Best Buy and buy a TV. Like this, we're talking about being in a, at a conference in like Palm Springs or something. I'd go to Best Buy, I'd buy a TV, I'd set it up, I'd use it for three days in the conference. And I'd bring it back when the conference is finished and go, oh, sorry, my wife doesn't like it in the bedroom and return the TV and get the money back. Because we couldn't afford to rent a TV or to buy a TV for the, for the occasion. So you have to hustle. You have to get by on, um, on very, very little money. But ultimately, your number one goal in the first five years of business is not to run out of money. Cash is king. Did you come across any uh, situations, I suppose, when you were... When you're essentially one of the terms here is that, listen, this is not, I, I don't need a check in a year's time. I need a check now, in which case that actually jeopardize the chance of, of winning a contract. Did that happen? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we just couldn't afford to, but it was, there was a, there was a kind of plausible deniability about this. There was something that I could look somebody in the eye and go, I cannot do this. I cannot invest. I can't hire those two people we need to do this unless you pay me up front. And by kind of, strength of personality and and hustle and, and honesty as well yeah and honesty exactly and really building personal relationships i was able to get, get pretty big deals on a handshake and kind of looking them in the eye and say i will deliver this for you you can believe me here are the proof points but i need you to pay me up front and my first deals just had to be like that now you can post pay you can do we can we can be a bit more flexible but at the time the first few deals they had to take a chance on us and they they took a bet and they weren't betting on a company or a brand. They were betting on on me personally. So you kind of build up those relationships and you make sure that they can they can trust you and and they paid up front and they and they got what they deserved and they're still customers to this day, like 10, 12 years later. Very good. So when you did try and raise capital, I suppose, by going to VCs, that didn't work out. Angel investors didn't work out. Had to be deflating, I suppose, at the time. Yeah, there's been a lot of kicks along the way. It's it's been pretty difficult. But, you know, it's funny, there's venture capitalism, there's nothing venture about VC, right? There's nothing, there's no chance we're taking. You know, a year later after we went to get venture money and we couldn't get it, it was humming along, we'd made a bunch of sales, it was all good. At that point, we were fighting them off. At that point, they were all coming back to us and saying, oh, great, like, we'll invest in you now. I'm like, well, I don't need you now, I need you a year ago. And they don't take a chance. Venture capitalists don't really take a chance. They they'll they'll invest in short things, and and the annoying thing about it is it's it's a slow no. If they just sort of they don't just kind of that's the most annoying thing in sales or looking for investment. And somebody kind of just doesn't say no. Here's the reason. Here's why I'm not going to invest, or here's why I'm not going to buy. They just kind of string you along, and they don't give you a straight answer, and they kind of waste your waste your time. So um, once we showed some promise, once we pivoted and we um, executed on what we need to execute on. 
it was pretty easy to get an investment if we wanted it. But it was pretty satisfying to be able to do it myself. So me and my business partner, right until the day we sold, we were able, we owned, you know, 45% of the company each. And we'd, we'd uh, given some some stock to uh, employees and so on. But we were very, very scabby about, about our equity at that point. We kept it all to ourselves and it worked out well for us. Something there, which I just think is important, is is that in essence, right? So in this instance, it's funding. Uh, but when you went out, when you set out to do something and it didn't work out for you, it's kind of a case of right. Well, let's just find a different way of doing it. In which case, we're not going to get the funding from venture capitalists or whatever the case may be. So we need to figure out a way where we do have um, where we do have uh, cash there to help us grow the business. Which I think is just very, very uh, good advice. It brings us nicely to point number three. Yes. which is, it's not hard, it's really hard. We did a customer survey once, and one of our customers described me as a persistent puppy. <laughs> I don't think that they were, they meant it as a compliment, but I took it as one. There was a lot of kickings, there was a lot of rejection, there was a lot of things you needed to do to get this going. So there was just no replacement for getting on that plane. I did 80 flights a year plus. I flew around the world constantly at the back of the, at the, back of the plane. Um, six months a year on the road, working at 150% of my capacity, like absolutely relentless, not taking no for an answer. Just a lot of dead ends, a lot of thrown muck at a wall and hoping some of it stuck. And some of it takes years to pay back. Um, but really along the way, you work out which bits are working, which bits are not, which are dead ends, which are not. And you try and take it all as, as one big learning opportunity. You try to um, just learn from everything and just kind of, okay, that's not a road we're going to go down and go from there. And when we started off, we were kind of unfocused and we had the wrong business model and we just kept on going and a lot of doors slammed in our faces until we found the one that worked for us and, and, that, and that's what worked. So um, like, it's really, really hard. It's not for everyone. It's mentally challenging. It's physically challenging. Um, you're flying around, you're sleeping on people's sofas. I haven't got a bob, but you just have to do it. And and it's it just... You know, it's not hard. It's really, really hard. And the rewards are good. So uh, not everybody can do this. Um, and, you know, whatever, 1% of, of businesses succeed and 1% of those do really well. So it's, it's, it's a really, really, really tough thing to do. It's not for everybody. And um, if you're going to do it, you just have to stick at it and, 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 and get there. That's pretty, yeah. That's like, regardless of what your business is, be it retail, be it, I don't know, we're working in the food industry, tech, whatever it is. Look, at the, the, the advice here is just that, you know, work hard, keep at it. Uh, perseverance uh, will get you places and uh, you'll succeed eventually once you kind of put your head to it. Well, the other side to it, of course, is know when to quit. So I could say that just keep at it, just keep at it blindly. It's keeping at it, listening to the feedback, trying to change what you need to change, learn what you need to learn, grow how you need to grow. And there was some variation of what we started doing on day one that worked. It wasn't exactly what we started doing. There was a lot of no's. There was a lot of conversations about why it wasn't working and so on. But because of the persistence, because of the determination to make something work, eventually we made something work. So bad advice would be just to keep at something no matter what, keep at the same thing. Really, the lesson is to keep at it until you find the thing that works and keep on listening and keep on changing. And go from there. And just in terms of uh, knowing when to quit, not necessarily knowing when to quit 
if it's not working out for you? Did you have to uh, know when to quit in terms of how much you were working? Like, you just go, do you know what? If I need this to succeed, I need if I need this to succeed, I can't be gone at 150% the whole time. So I need to just maybe take a step back and just have a recharge every now and then. Well, no, I didn't do that, to be honest with you. Um, and that was kind of half the problem. Um, I did 150%, you know, 80-hour weeks, 80, 100 flights a year for a lot of years. I, I tried to make it fun for myself. I tried to schedule in gigs in different places, piss-ups in different places, meet up with friends in different cities around around the world and so on. And I tried to get that, like, you know, to keep myself going and to make it not completely worth it. sure. Yeah, exactly. And I made it, made it worth it. And um, But no, I mean, for a lot of years, we're talking the first eight or 10 years, I just worked like an absolute maniac because that's what it took. Yeah. And obviously, look, it's paid off because uh, you are where you are today. Tip number four, I believe we're on. Is that correct? It is, yeah. Yeah, tip number four. If you can make it there, and what I mean by this is Ireland is too small. Europe is too diverse and fragmented. Australia is too far away. I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Chinese. So what I needed to do was go to America. So, you know, in 2013, 12 or 13, I went and rented an apartment in Brooklyn because I couldn't afford a hotel. And I stayed there and I spent months on end just chipping away at the American market. And I got a, a US mobile number. Um, I pounded the, the the sidewalk, not the pavement, um, yeah. if, you, if you like. Um, there's bigger numbers in America, just like bit better markets, there's more innovation, there's better funding. There's just so many more people there. And, you know, I could have stayed in Ireland, I could have done, you know, in, in my world, if I got some great contract like delivering the leave insert online or something like that. That's could be a great contract, but it's probably about the same size as a deal I can make with like this, the the second biggest publisher in Erie, Pennsylvania, right? Um and and we did a deal with the publisher in Erie, Erie Pennsylvania. And it was more than we would have made in Ireland for getting a whole countrywide worth worth of a worth of a contract. So if you're doing anything that's not kind of retail, you need to you can base yourself here, but you really need to get on a plane and and pick your market. In my case, it was America for very good reasons and 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 go there. Ireland is too small. Exactly. Yeah. So whether it's finding where your market is, in some cases, this could be a, I don't know, it could be an arts and food product that's selling an awful product in their, in their county and they're going, no, for me, I need to sell product all over Ireland or in which case it's a case of uh, the UK is the main market for me. But either way, what business owners need to do is that they need to identify where their uh, product is. and Oh, sorry, they need to identify where their market is and then go at that and try and break it. Yeah, and whatever that is, I mean, and, and there's, there's lots of things that will work locally and so on, but you need to understand what that is and understand how you will expand properly. For us, this wasn't going to work at the scale of Ireland. It needed to work on a global scale. We needed many, many millions of users to make this a scalable, good model that would really be be worth something. So we needed to go and do that. But you kind of got to be aware of that and, and get on a plane if necessary. Exactly. So recognize your uh, market and then try and crack it. Um, which brings us nicely on to your fifth and final tip for anybody is out there who is uh, looking to grow their business. What is it? So my tip number five is to take advice. And, you know, as I said before, I had a Bachelor of Commerce, I had a Master's of Business degrees. When I started the business, I realized just how little I knew 
and how ill-prepared I was to run a business. So I was, to my credit and to my infinite benefit, I was pretty good at finding clever people to listen to and to learn from. I didn't think of this as some sort of emasculating thing or whatever. I just kind of would latch on to anybody I could find who would talk to me about it and I could learn from. At different stages, different people were appropriate because there is different times in the business and different eras and different problems you're working on. And it's amazing how people will give their time for free if you just buy them a coffee or a beer. And I did that. I mean, everybody seems to have done it. Like Steve Jobs had a, had a story about a guy from Hewlett Packard. Um, there's lots of other examples. Zuckerberg uh, had Sean Parker in the, in the, in the Facebook, Facebook movie. Um, there's lots of, you know, A1 operators who just took advice properly and that's what made them an A1 operator. I had, I found people, I had a guy who I took on as chairman who was a great mentor. I had private equity partners who I'd be able to call up. They'd answer my call and they'd give me advice. Um, I have a guy who was number two in one of the world's biggest technology companies. And he came to Sydney twice. When, when he retired from the, from the company, um, he came to Sydney twice to spend two weeks with me helping and planning the company. Um, this guy who built trillion-dollar companies. And just because we became mates and he liked talking about it, we got on well, and he would do that for the price of a flight. He would fly to Australia and sit for a week or two and, and plan the business. And again, I didn't take that as some sort of slight that I needed advice or didn't know everything. I took that as an amazing learning opportunity to learn from who I could learn from. And how did that come from in this particular instance? Like, was it just simply you getting in touch by way of email or where did that relationship start off? The relationship started off um, when they were trying to, they tried to buy Lernosity at one point, without naming names. They tried to buy Lernosity at one point. That didn't work out. And the guy had subsequently left this massive company. Um, and we've just become friends. We've become friends throughout the process of them perhaps buying Lernosity. And he just became this kind of mentor for me. And we're still in touch. We, 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 we chat and he gives me this unbelievable advice. But that's kind of, that's advice you can't buy. That's, that's unbelievable stuff. And for him to come to Australia a few times to, uh, to sit and, you know, we'd spend a week uh, just like literally in the office planning for the next year. And yeah, um, in the sunshine as well, you know. Yeah. And then like in the morning times we'd go for a swim and then we'd go to the beach for the following week, right? So this is a guy who was, think about it, it's February in, in Australia, the sun is shining and everything's great. Um, and you know, there's, there's outdoor cinemas and all sorts of things. But he's coming from from a state in America that's pretty cold uh, in February. Yeah. So um, he's delighted to get on a plane to come down and, and to do this and sit in the sunshine with me for a week. But the you know the broader point, you don't need somebody of that level. The broader point is that along the way, along the journey at different stages, there are people who can advise you, and you need to listen to that advice. And the last thing, the worst thing you can do is to uh, close yourself off to that. If you can keep on keeping ear to the ground for that advice and, and take it where it's given, there's a bunch more people who are a bit better expert in the field than you are. Uh, and I do that to this day. I try to seek out people who, who I can speak to who are, you know, a, a few months or a few years ahead of the journey um, in the journey than I am. And I speak to them, go for lunch with them, buy them a pint, chat them on the Zoom, whatever it is, and get their advice. And oftentimes they're only too happy to give it to, give it to you, especially if they think you're going to take it and you're not going to discard it. 
course, like, I think it's when, like, sometimes people would have, uh, if I spoke at conferences, people would uh, introduce me as a social media expert or a digital marketing expert. I'm like, oh, I'm not an expert because I don't think there's an expert in everything. If I'm an expert, it means that it means that I can't learn anymore. It means that I know everything. And I don't know everything. You know, I don't know everything when it comes to uh, the business that I'm in because there's always something out there to learn. I don't know everything and what it is in terms of running a, a business and building a business. There's always there's always advice out there to take. And that's what I'm, what I'm here now, which I suppose, which is a good way to to end us because it's a very good set of fifth tip and the final tip is to in terms of taking advice from yourself is to take advice from other people and use that advice to help grow your business Gavin Absolutely. thank you uh, very much it's been great to touch on this podcast thanks for having me now if people just finally want to um, want to learn a bit more about you whereabouts should they go website social channels etc well you have learnocity.com and uh, anybody wants to reach out I'm Gavin at learnocity.com very good, Gavin. Thank you very much for being the very first uh, guest on the very first episode of the Mill Enterprise Hubs podcast, Helping Your Business Grow. It's been great to speak to you and best of luck with everything in the future. Thanks. It's an honor. Meet the Miller on Helping Your Business Grow, the Mill Enterprise Hub podcast. As I've mentioned already, residents of the mill here in Drogheda are known as Millers. And under every podcast, I'm going to interview one of these residents in our Meet the Millers section. For our first episode, I'm joined by John and Michael McKeown, two brothers from Cullen and County Louth and founders of lifestyle clothing brand Carpe Omnia. Gents, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Not at all. Thanks for coming on. Now, tell us, where did the idea come from to set up your own clothing brand? Yeah, so I suppose it all started in 2017. Um, Me and Michael both played sport quite a high level. And because of playing sport, we had unusually large legs. So I used to buy jeans that were like a 34 waist, even though I'm a 32 waist, just so they'd fit my quads. But even at that, they were still really, really tight. And then they used to flare out the ankle and stuff as well. So they weren't what we wanted. And we found that you couldn't actually buy what we wanted um, in the high street. So we kind of came together and said we'd do it ourselves. So that's where it started. So then this issue that you had of the clothes not fitting you, obviously it's turned out that it's actually a common enough uh, issue because obviously if the brand has been grown since you have started, that other people obviously have come across this issue as well. Yeah, we like actually in Ireland we did see there was a couple of UK brands popping up with us fixing the kind of problem as well so we were sort of well, look what they're doing it in the UK and, and there was Irish customers buying buying from the UK we said look we'll bring it bring it to Irish customers so that's what we done and, and that's how we started the business it was gaining a large Irish customer base and then since then they were able to grow into other markets UK markets European markets like we're selling all over the world now which is so yeah obviously the problem all over the world that's that type of fitting jeans so so this issue is it all clothing or is it really just is it just jeans really is it I suppose what do you call it legwear I don't know but is it just like jeans chinos that are well um, I'm not sure who's wearing chin, chinos now maybe you're right and, and I, I try not to um, but let's say I don't know uh, combats but it's mainly jeans and combats clothing for legs I suppose is where uh people are having issues with fittings is that right yeah that's where we kind of see yeah there was there was so we started out we used um, a couple of fitness influencers and obviously because they went to the gym and stuff as well they had similar kind of quads to us so that's kind of where we started using influencers at the very beginning and so obviously they they had quite big legs as well and 
jeans that were in the high street wouldn't fit them. There wasn't enough stretch material in the jeans. So we added that to the jeans. And then obviously we made a few adjustments ourselves as well. So Yeah, like tight to the ankle fit. Like a lot of skinny jeans and stuff that you buy in retail shops, they'd flare out the ankles, but ours are tight at the ankles. So so if you're wearing a nice pair of shoes that you can actually see them. And that's kind of what the, our kind of demographic are after. That's the fit that they like. So that's why we we created that that fit. And they're, because of the stretch, they're really, really comfortable as well. And that's why we get so many returning customers. They buy one pair, they buy two, three, four pairs. They, they want them all. So it's, it's, it's really good. So exactly. So I suppose the thing about it is that for the demographic that you're going after, which is a younger demographic, I'm guessing, would that be right? Yeah, between probably 16 to 25 year olds. Jeans that are just kind of fitting properly and aren't too flary, which aren't as popular as they might have been when I was growing up. These are, um, this is this. So this is the sort of cut that you're going for. How many products did you launch with? Two. So we started, yeah, January 2018 is when we launched. Obviously, I was just finished um, university. Uh, Michael was working full time. So we had very little money between us. So we started with six grand. We took out car loans and put the money into the business, put in six grand. All we could afford was two styles of jeans. So it was black non-ripped jeans, and black ripped and repaired jeans. And yeah, we've grown, grown from there. So Fair play. And so what were your backgrounds then? So what were you, what were you doing before this? My background, I actually studied biomedical science in Manute University for four years. Bit different, a little things. bit different in fashion, oh. yeah. But while I was there, I worked in a shop called Henry German, um, off Marion Square. And the owner of that was Niall O'Farrell, so he was a dragon on Dragon's Den. He owned black tie and stuff as well. So I actually used to book his flights out to Istanbul and I used to see all the shirts get made up. Like he, he designed the shirts, get them made. He showed us the templates before they're sent out, and then obviously get delivered to the shop and we try and sell them. Then. So that was where I kind of got a taste for, for the game. So um, Michael's background was in. Yeah, so I I'm, I studied multimedia. Um, and I worked with, with Tree as a digital designer, so kind of like the web design, graphic design, all that sort of sort of stuff. So, so was me, John approached me with this kind of idea that there was a gap in the market for the jeans. So, I mean, we put our skills together and we're able to create a website and create a social media page and all that sort of thing. And that's how it kind of started. Very good. So I suppose then when you were starting with that six K. Enough lot of it could be done in haste, so in which case you could have that. So you, that six k could actually could go a long way. Yeah, so that six k was basically to buy stock. Uh, we were doing all the fulfilment ourselves, and um, we had just a room in the house where we just stocked all the jeans. There was how many jeans was there? Eight, four hundred, four hundred jeans um, in the house. Um, but yeah, we were. I was able. We were able to. I was able to build the website, create the logo, to have all the branding looking nice, um, and then we kind of yeah, just. Through football, we were using influences that we kind of knew. I mean, you played football with was it Sean McGuire of yeah. Ireland and stuff. So we we're kind of using them guys that we knew to promote the products. Now we thought straight away, like you get Sean McGuire Ireland international, or you're going to sell loads and like that. But it's it's not like that at all. It's a lot lot slower. Like I mean, I think we sold like maybe one one a month for a while, and then it was one a week. So it was, that's how that's how slow it was. Yeah, it wasn't an overnight success, but obviously you've stick you've you've stuck at it. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we broke a thousand euro in sales until July or August of year one of twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. starting um, in January. And obviously, when we did, it was a it was a it was a big thing. But looking back, it was yeah, so so small, but we quite a successful well relatively successful um black friday that year and it was after that we kind of saw that you know there actually might be a business here and there might be there might be something in this so yeah but we did we did everything in-house like we even rented the 
think we went on like some Chinese website and got the studio lights and the backdrops and mm. went into the garage and did all the product photos ourselves. Looking back at them now, they're they're terrible. I don't know how anyone bought any jeans from them. But, <laughs> and uh, everything was just all done in-house at the beginning. So obviously the when you launched, it was part-time. Was it always the goal that this would become your full-time business or were you thinking, do you know what, we'll launch it, we'll see how it goes and sort of play it by year or did you know that this was going to take off eventually and you would be doing it full-time? Yeah, 100%. I think that's why we stuck at it in year one. I mean, if we didn't think that that was the end goal, we wouldn't have stuck at it because like, it was just so slow, so difficult. It was a completely new game to us that we hadn't no real experience in. Yeah, so yeah, we were working, part, we were working full-time jobs. I suppose I realised after four years that studying biomedical science it's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life um, so it was the case of working nine to five Monday to Friday and in the evening time just spending all evening all weekend um, building building the brand so fortunately then we were able to go full time with it then April 2019 we took the took the plunge and went quit the jobs and went full time with it so we always did believe that it would work we I don't think we would have started if we didn't believe we, we could go full-time with it and build a proper brand with it. We always did believe that. Very good. No, absolutely. And fair play to you because um, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to a bit of belief going, do you know what? It might have taken a good few months for us to break those kind of landmark 1,000 euro in a in a month, but you just knew that it was going to grow from there. So fair play for keeping at it. How many products do you have now? 28. So we've mixed. It's 20. Oh, actually, that's a lie. We've now got 31 because we just relaunched three pairs of cargo pants. Hmm. One product now. So we've cargo pants, we've jeans, we've hoodies, and we've t-shirts. So all for men still with plans of going to the female thing this, at the end of this year. So what are your best sellers? Are you known for kind of jeans and for cargo pants? And is it mainly, yeah, is it, is it mainly kind of I don't know if legwear is a word, but anyway, I'm going to go with it. Is it mainly legwear that um is where you're selling most of your product? Or are you seeing now that other that your other sales that you're seeing a bit of growth there as well in terms of t-shirts and hoodies and everything else? No, it's it's definitely jeans is what we're known for. Um, but we want to like, I mean, it's why we call the brand Carpe Omnia. We want to be known for like a whole wide range, a lifestyle range as such. Otherwise, we would have called our brand jean, denim, denim wear or skinny jeans, whatever, like something like that. So we, we always want to sell T-shirts, hoodies, jackets. We want to have a whole range, a whole collection. Um, but now we are starting to see people are buying our T-shirts now. They're buying our hoodies. It's definitely slower. But that's the work we have to do. We have to build the brand. We have to work with the the celebrities, the cooler people, put out the cool content to, to get people on board with our brand. Uh, so, yeah, that we, but we are we are starting to see that like, selling t-shirts, hoodies, and obviously our cargo pants now are doing really well as well. So, I think what, what most lads in Ireland and the UK, where we sell most of our products, they want a nice pair of fitting, fitted jeans. They don't really care what the brand is as such because you're not really shouting about it. Then they'll wear like a Calvin Klein t-shirt or a Tommy Hilfiger t-shirt or they'll wear an expensive t-shirt on top. The jeans, they don't really care about what the brand is once they fit right. So that's what we kind of, starting out, we kind of knew that that if we can just get into the market this way with the jeans, sell them to customers who don't, because obviously building a brand, it's expensive. But when you're just selling jeans, it's a little bit easier. The hard part is building the brand and wanting people to wear carpet on you, having an emotional connection to the brand. And um, so that's what we're kind of building on this year. So what you're finding is that people aren't so brand focused when it comes to jeans. But of course, then when they're wearing a T-shirt, they want to be wearing an Armani T-shirt, or Calvin Klein, whatever it is. So what you're going to do now is, I suppose, try and 
you're growing your customer base there through the genes. But of course, then people are going to have some sort of, as you said, emotional connection with the brand. And then they go, you know what? I'm going to get myself a t-shirt. I'm going to get myself a hoodie and just kind of, it's it's upselling to some extent. It is, it is like upselling. Um, and that's because we're building up our customer base through our genes. And I mean, when we put out the right content and work with the right people, people will become emotionally connected to Carpe Omnia. And that's what we want. And then they'll buy, they'll purchase our hoodies and t-shirts and jackets. To be honest, that's what our kind of goal was in 2020. We actually flew to LA. February last year, we flew to LA to shoot that sort of content. Obviously, Carpe Omnia means sees it all. We went in February with the goal of going to festivals in 2020. We obviously went to LA to shoot like content of people who sees life, basically. Um, and then obviously, the pandemic happened. Um, very hard to shoot and film content when people are locked indoors. Very hard to seize it all when people are locked in their homes. Like, so... That whole thing, like the, the LA content, we put out photos, but we've so much content in terms of videos and stuff that we we're just never able to put out because of the pandemic. Like, so um, I feel like when things open up again, it'll, the brand will even be even more relevant to seize it all. Um, so hopefully that happens soon. Uh, well, fingers crossed, we'll be hoping sooner rather than later. You've said that your two biggest markets are Ireland and the UK. And obviously, I suppose Ireland being your well, Ireland being your first. Ireland was the first market that you would have broken yeah. into, is that right? Yeah. And then followed by the UK. But now you're selling in other countries as well. Tell us where else you're selling it, and how are you breaking into these markets? Probably the next one after the UK would be the Netherlands, and then Germany, Belgium, kind of the European countries. Um, and then after that, we get sales into America then as well. We could, we I, I think it was originally probably through influencers because we did influencer marketing at the very beginning. That's probably how they were introduced to the brand um, and they were willing to purchase jeans off us. Now we're starting to look at running ad, ad, social media ads into the Netherlands and stuff and into America. And that's where we're kind of hopefully see really good results. Now we've start, only touched on ads now into the Netherlands, but we're seeing good results now, getting a good return on ad spend. So that's how we're going to get into the different markets and then obviously maybe set up some sort of fulfillment in your kind of give them a better experience with delivery and next day the delivery or returns and stuff so and then maybe then america then after that and then the world that's the plan (laughs) since you've launched what do you think have been the biggest challenges that you've faced so far the biggest challenges i'd say was probably like we said earlier just how slow everything was at the start i suppose like we probably didn't anticipate how slow it would be to get going at the very beginning. Obviously, then we quit. The, we quit our jobs. We had to move back home. We weren't obviously we, didn't, we weren't paying ourselves an awful lot of money, so we had to move back home and back living with mom and dad. I think I was twenty five. You were twenty seven. Mm. That was quite difficult. I I sold my car as well because, as I said, sales weren't great in year one. So we were coming into the summer and we needed light blue jeans and we needed de- like blue denim jeans. So I sold my car put that money into the into the business as well. So I was without a car until June last year. So I suppose it's just it's just the sacrifices that you have to make. Especially when you're, we were living a nice lifestyle in Dublin, working on our full-time jobs, rent and having a, it was a nice lifestyle, but you kind of have to, had to take a step back then, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, so it was that kind of sacrifice of living back home and not having any much money in your pocket. But I think it's, it's rewarding now. It's definitely worth it. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose those sacrifices that need to be made, but then it comes down to belief as well. It goes, it's knowing that it won't always be like that. And then, so I suppose in terms of what your biggest challenges, what has surprised you most since launching? It's one. I'd say one of the things was definitely like the loyalty your customers have towards your brand. I mean, like obviously 
was slow to kind of gain the customers. But then once the customer bought into your brand and into your product, you, it's very, it was very surprising to see how loyal they were, like to be customers writing to you, giving you feedback, leaving reviews on your website. Then when you do release your T-shirts, they buy your T-shirts, your hoodies. You know, they're buying our cargo pants. Like, it's that customer loyalty. I, I didn't I didn't realize it would be so strong, especially the early adopters. Mm. Um, so people just let them know we're after buying your product, then just give you feedback? They give a feedback. Like, we have a whole section of customer reviews. Now, we'd obviously give them, like, a, a discount if they give reviews. But, like, we get DMs every day of customers, like, Putting sharing stuff on their stories and that messages from customers, which is very surprising. I think that's the nature of denim as well. When people find the fit they like, they want they want they'll throw out every other pair of jeans they have in the wardrobe and buy all of ours. I think that's what we've seen that happen. Um, people find the fit, they love the fit, and then yeah, they'll just keep buying from us. So that's obviously brilliant. Obviously, when you're at the start acquiring customers, it's very expensive. But if you can upsell to your current customers, obviously it's a lot cheaper that way. So. That's one thing that's been brilliant for us. You're sort of building an army of brand advocates, I suppose, really. Yeah, <laughs> kind, of, kind of is like that, yeah. Um, yeah, when they, they just, customers love the fit of our jeans and they're really supportive of the brand. So yeah, it kind of is like that, yeah. So in the space, right, so it's a particular cut of jean which is kind of aimed towards that sort of male demographic. And I know uh, you'll be turning uh, the female market soon, but at the moment it's males who've got large legs because they play an awful lot of sport. You were saying that there's other, that there are other brands that are doing that, just no Irish ones. So how competitive a market at the moment is it? Yeah, I suppose at the very beginning, everyone was telling us not to do it, like it was saturated and stuff. But I suppose, like I said earlier, we knew that there was a market in Ireland, 100%, that we could, if we offer next day delivery to customers in Ireland, there's definitely a market there. As we've gone over to the UK and start running ads in the UK, yeah, it's definitely more competitive. But we'd argue our jeans are better than yeah. our competitors. So. Yeah, so... And then one, and that's the thing. Like we we've, we've now seen it was fifty fifty there for a while recently of a customer base, but now it's the UK. It's overtaken our Irish store. We have two stores. Well, our dot com and our dot co at UK. Yeah, dot com and dot co at UK. So, but now we're seeing that our dot co at UK store is outgrowing our dot com store. I suppose one thing as well we haven't mentioned is our fulfillment center is actually in Belfast. So mm. that allows us to offer next day delivery to Ireland and to the UK. So, um, that was really beneficial to for us. So people recommend maybe that you don't go into space because it is a, well, I think you mentioned earlier that some people said it was a saturated market, but you kind of went for it anyway. What is your USP? What, differentiate, what differentiates you then from your competitors? Is it simply that? Is it just that they're better genes or, or are there other things as well? At the minute, yeah, probably it is just the genes at the moment. But as, as we said, like we want to expand on Carpe Omnia, the brand, I suppose there's a lot of brands within the kind of, or we probably would be streetwear brand. Um, we like to think we're a little bit more high-end than just streetwear. Um, there would be a lot of brands in that game online, but I don't think there's much substance to them. Like, I mean, some brands, they'll work with whoever's on Love Island. They'll give the clothes to them, work with them for six months. And then there's a new crowd on Love Island, work with them for six months. I don't think there's a real emotional connection to them sort of brands. And we believe that through the content we will put out and stuff that we do put out, that customers will get that emotional connection with our brand and they'll stay loyal to it. Always then that message of Carpe Omnia sees it all. Content, so then marketing is a huge, huge part of this and the sort of content that you're putting out. This has obviously been a major part of your, of your success to date. Yeah, I mean, we're in fashion, but we're, we're, not, like, we're not just a clothing brand. What do you always say? We're not just clothing. We're, so, we're, social, we're a social media company. Mm. 
as well. Yeah. yeah. It's all it's all about content. It's a content game. And because that's what we we've grown up on social media. Uh, so like we we try and put out the highest quality social media we can. Um the pictures are all top quality. The videos we create have to be top quality. And then obviously when the world opens up, we want to create content around festivals, mu- music, sport, all all the things that are, are interest our audience. Um, so it is a bit, it's a, it's a content game as well. What piece of advice would you give to anybody out there who's just launched a business or is thinking of launching a business and, and wants to make, make a success of it? I suppose I know it's probably cliched, but only go into it if you really have a passion and a love for it. Um, like we said, year one was just so slow. Looking back, like I mean, if we didn't love what we were doing, we wouldn't have kept going. There's, there's, it just wouldn't have happened. Like Because as we spoke about the sacrifice we had to make, um, there's, there's no way if we didn't enjoy doing it that we would have continued with it. So yeah, I suppose have a real love for doing it. Um, I'd, I'd also say bring something unique to the market. That was fashion for us. Like it's it's such a competitive industry, but we brought something unique in the fit of our jeans, especially to Ireland, and we were able to build a customer base from that. So if you're bringing something you unique to the market, I tell you, that's that's definitely going to be help you massively. And that, that it was us with the jeans, that and that's what give us access to so like so many sales and so many customers. So it's definitely a big USP. Very good. It's no good advice there. Be passionate and have something that's unique that's going to that people will, I suppose, um want and 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 come back to one. So yeah, return sales that can of repeat customers are as I said, you've built these brand advocates. So you might you must get enough of sales at this stage that are just organic, that are just people who are returning to buy over and over again. I suppose, yeah, like you said, organic. That's one thing we actually probably didn't mention as well. Like so obviously you're you're advertising jeans and stuff, but the main biggest form of advertising for us was like we used social media ads and there was influence at the beginning. The, main, the biggest seller and the biggest um, form of advertising for us was just friends telling other people about it, like friends telling friends to how good our jeans were and stuff. And obviously that that's free marketing. And for us at the beginning, that was really, really powerful for us. So, you know, I always I tell people, I go, your most success, you know, your most powerful social network isn't Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's not Twitter. It's the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter accounts of your customers. If they are actually saying how great you are, it's more powerful than you going, I'm great. You know, you want them saying it rather than you because you're obviously going to say it. Now, guys, if anybody listening to this is in the market for a new pair of jeans or just wants to find a little bit more about what you guys do, where should they go? Yeah, so uh, the website is www.carpeomnialifestyle.com. Um, and then our social media is usually Facebook and Instagram will be our main ones. And that's at Carpe Omnia Lifestyle. So you can check everything out there. Well, John and Michael, congratulations on your success today. It's a great story coming from the Northeast. Um, it's a very unique story. And it's great to see you having so much success thus far. And I wish you lots of success in the future. Thanks very much. Colin. Thank you very much, Colin. Cheers. So there you have it, the very first episode of our new podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Again, a huge thank you to our guests, Gavin Cooney of Lernosity and Michael and John McKeown of Carpe Omnia. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your podcast platform of choice so you'll never miss an episode. And sure, you might give this episode an L like at the same time and maybe even a positive review. If you're interested in learning more about the mill here in Drogheda, 
what we do and how we help entrepreneurs grow their business, log on to themilldrahada.ie. There's a contact form there on the website where you can get in touch with us. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the next episode of Helping Your Business Grow with me, Colm Hanratty. Thanks for listening.